way to look at data literacy is we first need to look at business savviness. If people know the business that they're in and we provide them with the right analytics tools, then they can use that to apply better decision making. And that's where we need to look to first rather than the data literacy. Welcome to the Data Chief. Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. One of the most exciting things about learning how other cultures view and work with data is seeing data through a new lens. Joining us today from the other side of the world is Jan Shepard, the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for ESR, a Crown Research Institute and company owned by New Zealand. Like many other CDAOs, her role is relatively new, but her view of data is timeless. She applies traditional cultural values of the indigenous Maori people in her work and seeks to honor the life force of data. Keeping in mind the honor owed to past, present, and future generations helps Jan to set ethical standards and informs the way they keep and interpret data at ESR. Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Jan, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you, Cindy. It's fantastic to be here and to be uh, able to be having this conversation today. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm so excited to have you uh, for a number of reasons. But one, you are our first Data Chief guest from actually New Zealand. So where in New Zealand are you joining us from today? Well, that that is quite a, a privilege. So I'm joining from Wellington, which is the capital city of, of New Zealand. So New Zealand's an island nation, some quite large islands. So Wellington is right in in the middle. So the heart of heart of government and the heart of the country. Great. So the heart of government, and this is the other reason why I'm excited to have you here because you have a very different background and purpose from some of our other guests. Tell us a little bit about ESR and its mission. ESR is is a Crown Research Institute, which is it's essentially a government-owned company. So uh, our shareholders are the people of New Zealand as well as the land. Our mission is to look after people health, environmental health and forensics. And what that means is an ecosystem as well as, as those individual pillars. We have uh, key customers, uh, the Ministry of Health and Police, along with a lot of other uh, government agencies, Ministry of Primary Industries, and we serve some private private companies as well. So we're based around doing leading research into the, our three pillars, and we use that research to run a consultancy arm and also commercialise products that we then sell to make money off to return value to our stakeholders. But the connection between us and the people and the land is really the important essence of what 
what drives us. We, we serve communities in ways that isn't possible through a traditional government agency or a commercial organisation. And it's, um, my role was created a little over a year ago when the organisation decided that data was an, also an important part of our, our business and we needed to do better in that. So building a fourth pillar to, to our science through data science and computational science. Yeah, so it's quite a vast uh, focus area, both public and, in a way, private sector or commercializing your uh, data products, but then also the range of use cases or applications when you describe public health and then police, so forensics, and land. That's so broad, and I would imagine the data is vastly different across these sectors. Absolutely, and that, that is part of why we can do what we do. Uh, our, our data is the reporting of an infectious disease in a time and place that a person has. Uh, data is DNA. Uh, data is counts of bacteria. Uh, our data, and interestingly, um, during COVID, we found a new source, source of data. Our data comes from from wastewater. So we we create and source a lot of data ourselves from the environment around us, as well as it being zeros and ones. And that that is uh, quite a humbling experience when we our data is is what we live and breathe. Our data is our community and our our environment. And particularly when we're dealing with with DNA, it's it adds another dimension to our responsibilities and also what we can see because we all like we all like modeling and being able to see into the future see beyond the horizon as to what's what's coming and, and then choosing the best way to move forward but when we're dealing with dna we're dealing with with ancestors of the person whose dna it is we're dealing with them in in the present time and also future generations that are yet to be born. So we have quite different responsibilities from an, a moral and an ethic perspective when we're, we're dealing with some of the data that we do and it, it adds a respect to our work that we wouldn't perhaps otherwise have. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, Jan. First off, the data from wastewater as an indicator of disease outbreaks. I remember when I first read about that idea in the beginning weeks of COVID, I was like, oh my gosh, that seems very unusual. And now it's almost standard practice. How did you discover that? Or did it surprise you that it's become such an important data source in our toolkit? I, I would say that in, in times of extreme change or need drives innovation. And, and if I draw an analogy from World War II, when the fighter pilots came back and their planes were all shot up, so the engineers set to reinforce the areas of the planes where there were bullet holes to protect pilot safety. And that had no impact whatsoever because they were looking at the data they saw, which was the bullet holes, not the data that they didn't see, and that was where the planes that didn't come back were shot. So... We can relate the same approach to to COVID. When when COVID turned up, data didn't exist in the way pre-packaged ways that we could consume to be able to see what was happening 
with COVID and where it was spreading and how it was spreading. And so we turned to somewhere that we had never looked before for data, and that was that was wastewater. And it, certainly, the US was was a leader in this. We've had a few conversations over the times with what what different approaches people around the world are taking, and and conversations that can only happen in a context like that when you're de- dealing with a topic like wastewater. Not many people would understand or appreciate the nuances or 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 need to, but it's in that times of change or times of adversity when we get the opportunity to look at things differently and certainly wastewater has proven to be a huge ally in in this time with COVID but also looking forward when we're looking for other pathogens, the next next pandemic as it comes along and as we're dealing with monkeypox, measles outbreaks now because children weren't vaccinated as they would be Wastewater is becoming a very rich resource for us, and it's something that had been there all the time, but we'd never thought to look at it. Yeah, and I I like your analogy of the fighter pilots and their planes who didn't come back. And oftentimes we forget what is the biggest data set. It's the data gaps that we have, the rest of the population that we don't know about. I've heard you describe data Many will talk about data as an asset, data as the new oil. You actually use the word treasure. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, look, um, data is is the new asset. It's able to help us as organizations do things that that we could we could never do before. And it's it's for commercial companies, it's it's a legitimate line on their balance sheet. Now it can be sold for money. And I think that. That term describes it, but only describes an aspect of what data is capable of. Equally, if we don't look after our data, data soon becomes a liability because it's expensive to store and, and gather. And that's that's certainly a commercial mindset, talking about assets and and liability. For us in New Zealand, we have we have a word, toonga, and that means a treasure, a gift from the past to the future. And that's how we see our data. So if we look after our data, if we store it well, we have standards, we keep it in, in current formats that it's able to be consumable, it's discoverable, we can use our data over and over and ask new questions of our data as the future unfolds that we didn't know to ask at the time. So it is a window into from the past into the future and by considering it a treasure, really shapes how we care for it and what's what's important to preserve into the future, not discard it as soon as it doesn't have any commercial value, but hold on to it because it's something that the future might need. Yeah, you don't know, um, you might not be able to anticipate its value. Well, as you think about this value and what's different for you at ESR is that you're both um, acting as a public sector agency, but also the ability to commercialize some of this. As you think about um, this, do you find that government is maybe more scared of data than private companies, or how does that play out? Government's definitely more more scared of data. And if we look at private companies, they've had to get good with data. Data's given them the insights to stay relevant and to stay in business, essentially. 
So commercial organisations have been very quick to take up the opportunity that data gives them. And they've also been very good at managing consent. So whenever we buy something online, we always tick the box since we agree to terms and conditions. We sign up for a new app. We we get a loyalty card anywhere. We always, without question, accept the terms and conditions. And this is where private companies are getting their consent to use data in the way that helps them grow their business. In the government sector, we are not so good at consent. We've always collected data for transactional purposes, so whether it's what tax someone needs to pay, benefits that they need to to receive or hospital care or education, there's always um, a limited consent around the data that's collected for these purposes that it's used for operational sense, not, not research or not enhancing services if we we shared it across agencies so that's a real limitation that we have and and so we spend a lot of time concerned about privacy and making sure that we're meeting our expectations of what people have given us permission around data and it's a hard really hard one to overcome also in government we have the the challenge of we need to know facts and not have uh, uncertainties. We need to be sure and accountable. Our, our political drivers for whoever's in government at the time is to be re-elected in, in three years. So they don't want to have, um, they, they can't afford to operate off uncertainties because then they're held accountable for being wrong. And we saw we saw this in, through the COVID process when we were, um, along with some other organisations, were modelling the impact of COVID. And our government made a very brave move, which proved to be incredibly valuable for us as a country to close the borders so we could get our vaccination rates up to a point where we had protection and at least resilience in this country before we opened the borders and COVID came in. That had a big price on on us as a country. Families were, were split and many workplaces suffered as a result. Tourism industry disappeared. But the decision was made to keep us, us safe. And the modelling that we did around that was showing us the outcome if we didn't do this. Because we had the modelling to show us what would happen, we took corrective actions. And then at the end of that time, when people were tired, they looked at the modelling and said, but that didn't work out. The future you said would happen didn't eventuate because we only give it, ever get to live one future. And that that was then put the government in a perhaps um, uncomfortable position because they had used something that had uncertainty in it, which is modelling, to make decisions about the future and by taking actions, the future that was predicted didn't happen. And then they were held accountable for the, the difference. But in actual fact, the modelling did its work, showed us a vision of the future that we managed to avoid. The facts are we didn't have that future rather than that. that that's, and that's what should be, be celebrated. So it's always a difficult position in government when you have to deal with facts and certainty that a government is driven off and uncertainty, which is, is reality and the best that data can give us. Yeah, so there's a couple things there, Jan. One, it sounds like 
it's not so much that government is afraid of data. They're just afraid of it being misused. And because things are more restrictive in government, if you have not clearly set up front how this data will be used, you don't get to use it for a broader context than originally intended. Is that fair to say? That's that's absolutely fair to say. And um, one step that we've taken in New Zealand to, to move forward past that is we have a agency responsible for statistics has set up a database for research that brings in tax data, education data, um, justice data, immigration data into one place and anonymizes the data and, and links it as best can so that researchers can look in there and and play out what's what's happened, um, apply different lenses and apply, apply broader lenses. This is a very good first start and it's absolutely an insight into what we can achieve. We do need to go further because the we don't have a citizen number in New Zealand, so linking data across all these data sets is a challenge and it's it's quite tightly restricted to be able to have resilience like Scotland did when, when COVID first hit there. They have digital twin of the health of their population. They are able to model out where COVID was going to hit the hardest, who was going to be most impacted, what, what parts of the health system were going to be Hit. We need to move to that type of of level so that we can face the next that comes along, whether that be another pandemic, climate change, or the or the like. It is hard. It is absolutely hard, and it is possible if we look to Estonia that's managed to do that. They did have the catalyst of losing all their data, so when they they rebuilt back, they built back as an open policy in the first instance, so they didn't have to go through the historic um, hurdles that, that we have in place at the moment. But So certainly they're an, an inspiration as to what can happen when we join up our data. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to look at the Estonia data set. I will say, um, I, I, comparing the US and the UK, for example, I was glad that the UK had the centralized healthcare system because it gave them a little bit better visibility into what was going on and even the predictors of risk. So I think this is the other point of your your discussion is that people misinterpreted the model or they thought the model would be absolute truth of what would happen in the future. And yet a model can only be based on whatever data you've had in the past (laughs) with the requisite interventions that were taken, like the lockdowns, the vaccination, closing the border. And it almost gets into the need for data literacy as a life skill so that when you put these public safety informations out there that are data dependent, that people better understand what is happening. I think one of the biggest gifts of COVID is that it proved how savvy people were were with data. And it's interesting you use the term data literacy because I found that to be problematic in, in the past. So I moved to data savvy and, uh, and encountered this quite significantly in an organisation I was, 
I was working for and rolling out data and analytics as a, as a new thing across the organisation and, like, here's this, this bright future. It's at your fingertips. You can gain insights, make better decisions, all those those fantastic things. And one of the people working on the project from a change perspective said, uh, we, we must guard against people misusing this this data and they they have to do a course to prove they've got the literacy skills before we'll let them have access to it. And that was an epic failure because we went to this organisation that was full of people with PhDs and by using the term literacy, we were implying that they were somehow illiterate and they took took great offence. I think the way to look at at data literacy is we first need to look at business savviness. If people know the business that they're in and we provide them with the right analytics tools, then they can use that to apply better decision-making. And that's where we need to look to first rather than the data literacy because, as, as I said, COVID showed just how data-savvy people are. We hung off numbers. We looked at all sorts of amazing graphs every day to see what was happening with COVID. In our everyday lives, we have Fitbits. We count how many steps that we've taken, how many calories we've eaten. We count lots of uh, health markers on a daily basis through our watch, our phones. So we're living and breathing data and analytics. And because we know the business that we're in when it comes to our personal lives, we can apply them really well. So I think that we need to look at that same model across our workplaces and make sure that we're we're focusing on business savviness and data and analytics that can support the business and make sure it's not just data and analytics that that look good or are interesting for us as data people. And then they'll be much more valuable and, and useful. Yeah. So I love your point. And I actually use the term data fluency, but I feel like I've been swimming against the tide here and and just uh, embraced uh, using data literacy. But you're right that it is more about um, business savviness or understanding how the business works. And data is just a supporting point in those business operations. But I like your term business and data savviness. Uh, I think we'll have to adopt some of that. So that's great. Well, as you um, think about your strategy at ESR, how do you think about the way that you use data to guide the whole organization? What's your North Star um, metrics here? Yeah, um, like I, I, I touched on, my role was created uh, a little over a year ago when the when ESR recognised the value of data and what it what it could do for us as an organisation. So pretty much starting from a, a blank canvas, which has, has been a great, great opportunity. So I started out by lifting the rocks, finding out what data we had, where across the organisation, what what actually was the, the treasure that we had. And I've done a, clamp, a sweep across the organisation, created an information asset register as a result, and in, in that time also now standing up a modern data platform. We had a data warehouse that looked after an amount of the organization's data, but certainly not all of it. So um, starting with the foundation of the tools, understanding what we have 
and having a way that we can better manage that that data and truly treat it as a treasure where people across the organisations can can blend data of different types. We can bring in weather data, population data and other data sets from outside the organisation to create quite a rich, rich resource. So the focus has been on and building the foundation while also setting the North Star. And the North Star to me is about value. What is the value that we can realise from our data? What is the value that it brings in starting that narrative across the organisation? I did write a data strategy to to outline what, what this looks like. It's And I'm proud to say it's two pages. That was my goal. It was to not go over two pages because if it was any more no one would read it and I wrote it as a story, a story about the future, what this future needs to look like and why, or what the future will look like when we go on this journey and why that's important so that people can see themselves in this, they can see the work that they do in this and they can see the value that that data adds. So using value as the North Star and the strategy is essentially the vision of what what that looks like to us is is the technique that I'm applying at the moment to take the organisation forward or for them to take themselves forward and move into, into that space. Well, I love that you bring in data storytelling skills, but two pages All right. So I'm thinking of all those uh, data chief listeners who are probably going back saying, oh, we have a lot of content to cut from our 20 page data strategy. So if um, given that you also are in the public sector, is that document public? Can people, can citizens read the data strategy? I'm very happy to share it with anyone. It's it's not in the public domain at the moment, but if anyone wants wants it, I'm more than happy to share it because this is this is the amazing thing about data. Between organisations, we're not in competition with each other. We're about collaborating and sharing because we need each other to be better and to be growing in this this time of rapid change. So it's it's a wonderful community that we're operating in. So Dan, you mentioned the sharing of data, um, additional data sources, whether it's population, but also by the nature of your charter, you're crossing verticals like healthcare, police. Can you describe an example of how crossing these verticals led to better value or more impactful insights? Yeah, I'll look... um Early on in the journey at the moment at, at ESR, but what I will, will share is what I'm driving towards is, is digital twins. So not a new concept in a, in a lot of fields, but certainly for, for us it is, and tested that out with some of our COVID modelling as to what, what that could look like and what value it could be. Because so when we were, we were modelling for COVID, it's not just the vaccination rates and the age of the population and, and how we were was shaping up with the, the core health risk factors, but started looking at household composition where there's multiple generations living in a house density of, of population in an area and started bringing in a number of other factors so we could get down to more the reality of how COVID would spread and the impact across the, the country once, once it 
arrived and started to emerge and we were then moved on to living with reality, uh, the reality of COVID. So pushing out into the space around digital twins, which helps us see the things across the domains. One area this is particularly important for us is, is climate change. We're doing some work in, in the Pacific Islands at the moment. And the Pacific Islands are an amazing scientific um, opportunity and there is a burning platform when it comes to to climate change. The amazing scientific opportunity is they're closed ecosystems. So we are able to see what's changing in drinking water, what's changing in soils, the people's health, food supplies, as temperature rises even by a degree. And taking this digital twin approach, if we're modelling out people health and the environmental health, and we can overlay those two together, we're able to see the impact of climate change in one space and how it affects another. So if it's an impact in the environment and how that impacts on, on people and also vice versa. So um, starting that journey, but it's it's definitely our future and going to have a big big impact on how we, we address some of the bigger issues that are in front of us and climate change being another one. Um, the fact that the Pacific Island nations are under threat from climate change through rising sea levels means it's more important that we focus on that, this part of the world to help them with the, the immediate issues that they're dealing with in terms of their health and environment as, as a result of, of climate change. So there is a great need for us to be moving into this space. So looking forward to doing that at, at speed. And it, it's uh, for us, having a real-world opportunity like this is a great driver. Yeah, so combining climate change with then um, health is is fascinating. This gets into the whole area of ESG reporting or environmental, social, and governance reporting and this is tough because there are not many standards for how to capture this data, even getting down to, for example, CO2 emissions from individual buildings when you don't have smart buildings everywhere is difficult. So how, how would you advise data and analytics leaders and even people in, in public policy to think about improving the quality of this data here? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd start right at the beginning, is you get what you measure. So make sure we define the purpose of ESG and make sure we're very, very clear on why this is important and what we want to get out of it. Because if we just put some measures in place and went for those, we're at risk of breaking the system. We are in times of, of significant change, exponential change even. And by bringing in a, a driver like ESG, that, and we rightly should be making improvements, it's right to call this out because we do need to be moving forward collectively as well as, as individually in, in the space. But we've got to be really clear that we're creating the right future and not breaking the future by not knowing what's what's important, not clearly defining it. 
so that we can be measuring the right things. To your point, it's it's really hard because it's aspirational at best at the moment. There's not, not clear guidelines. And one outcome of this is we could spend, as organisations, a lot of money. If measuring CO2 is what's important and we don't have a smart building, we will put in sensors, we will get, we will risk measuring CO2 in many, many different ways and and getting some data that we would put together that we think should tell a story, but it won't all line up. We won't be having the same methodologies, our organisations are different. Some will produce more CO2 naturally in the course of their business, some won't. Some will look good by just doing what what they currently do so they're not actually making any advances. So coming back to being really clear about what it is, what does good look like and making sure we're getting the right incentives and then measures in place. And like for now, because there's no guidelines, organisations are writing the narrative that suits them. We're, we're looking at what sustainability looks like for us and how we we measure it, but we're writing our own version of it. And that's the risk that some the bigger players in this will, will write the world narrative and then we'll have to live to that. So the advice I'd give is everyone needs to step into the space and start to understand at least what this looks like for them. What does it look like for your organisation now as a, as a baseline and where does it make good sense to make shifts. It certainly won't be everywhere. That would be too expensive and you risk breaking breaking your organisation. But just pick one thing and start and the next thing will reveal itself. We need to start writing our own narratives. Yeah, and so maybe it's also the reality, though, just to push back on this a little bit, that you do have to write your own guidelines if you're the first one in. So we have to start somewhere. For sure, we don't want, um, let's say, organizations that are bad actors writing and la- larger voices writing the guidelines for us. Exactly. So Jan, you've been in this role just over a year. Your previous role in education but still data and analytics. Did you choose the role or did the role choose you? How did you make this transition? Very, very good question. And I feel, um, I feel I've been very fortunate through, through my, uh, I'll say life and, and career. Data's always been something that's like, I've, I've seen, see the world differently, see it, in, in data my, my whole entire life. So I'd like to sit and think that I'm on a life journey. So the opportunities arise, the doors open, and I feel like I just step through from one to the next. But, of course, you have to make opportunities and you have to actually step through the doors. But it's an amazing journey, an amazing experience, and I often use the reference about the matrix, how see all the the zeros and ones making up the shapes and patterns and creating new worlds and that's certainly how how I see the world and in data and that's what I take to wherever I work and like this opportunity at 
at ESR is is just amazing because it is literally creating new worlds through data as opposed to being part of a system that focuses on on a, a narrower piece. So this is this is my dream job, and I, I it just came up, the door opened, and I I stepped through. I was ready for a change, and it it happened to be. Oh, well, that's great that you're in your dream job. I think I think we're in our dream industry. And whereas you see the matrix ones and zeros, I'm always seeing the data flows um, from, from devices or transactions through to the insights and analytics. So I, maybe we're just wired this way, um, but it's an exciting time. I would say also potentially a fragile or dangerous time in the data and AI space. And I know this is where you've spoken before about values and the values of the Maori values and how this relates to um, data collection and treatment. Can you explain what that is? Absolutely. And look, I'd have to say it is a is it a privilege to live in a, a country that is, is so rich culturally? So the the Maori people are indigenous to New Zealand, and Europeans have been here for a very short amount of time. I think it was 1769 when when um, James Cook first sighted New Zealand shores. So in the in the world history, that's a, a very um, short time frame. The Maori values, um, sadly, were were lost to us for a length of time as as countries go through a period where um, they grow into a different shape and form. And one of the the great things that we have is when Europeans first arrived in in New Zealand, we signed a treaty, a treaty between the the British Crown and the the Iwi leaders of of New Zealand, and it's it's delightful to say that this treaty is is growing in its value in in more recent times, and it certainly is uh, the public sector our responsibilities towards the treaty, and that's that's a partnership responsibility is is becoming more evident and prominent in the expectation on us, and that is that is a very good thing. The Maori people have, have always been very, very connected to the land and their environment and um, very relationship orientated. And so if I was to, to give three examples from the Teo Maori to the Maori world view, that I would be, be great to share today. Uh, and there's some very good principles come out of the, the Teo Maori view for, for data practice. The first one being mana before mahi. So build the relationships and trust before you start doing the work. And that's very, very important in anything we do with data. If we get some data and we do some great things, build some analytics, get some insights, and and particularly when we start to get into algorithms and modeling, unless we understand the people whose data it is, unless we have their trust and insights, into what what would be beneficial into the future, we're at risk of building something that's detrimental to them. And 
just creating a great data product but not actually realizable value. So very, very important that in our work and our approach around data that we, we build the mana before we start the mahi. So build the trust before we we do the work. A second one I'd share is in the in the Maori world, there is a concept of the the good of the many versus the good of the individual. And like we touched on before, we're quite tied up around the privacy of the individual, protecting their data, only using it for the reason that transactional reason it was collected. If we apply this this context around serving the greater good, this is where using data for research, using data, digital twins, using data for joining up services that government provides so the person can have the best outcome as opposed to you go to one area for health, you go to another for housing, you go to another for benefits or income. And so joining up and having that that holistic view of people, we're able to better serve the the individuals. And the the third one I'll share is is the one that I find most amazing and, and in terms of a driver for how we should respect and treat data as a toanga is data has Māori. It has a life essence in itself. So in, in the Māori world, things are either inanimate or they have a, a life essence or life force. And we often think about data as, as an animate and we create something, we create graphs, we we publish that, people gain insights. But actually, by doing so, we're releasing the, the life force of the data by giving people insight, the ability to have insights. They can make different decisions and they can have conversations with people who then do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. And this all comes back to the data and using the data and it, it, it highlights our responsibility. So by using data, we're setting it out into the ecosystem so it can reach further beyond than what we can as, as individuals or even as our, our organisation. It does have its own life force and it can go beyond what, what we foresee. We need to be very mindful that when we use our data and, and release it out into the, the ecosystem, and we also need to make sure that we're doing that with the right intentions. And we also need to be brave in, in doing that and letting greater things happen because we do than what we could imagine or certainly what we can control. So we need to allow that data to share its, its life force to change and influence beyond our reach. Jan, that's so powerful. <laughs> And beautiful. I want to stop right there. Like we're done. <laughs> Data as a life force. Um, I really like that. And, and I like these guiding principles, particularly the first one. I think that's one um, that to me is not just about the data application you're building, but really the people that you have to work with and collaborate with as a data leader. So thank you for those um three guiding principles. That's wonderful. We'll do a hard, a hard pivot then, I guess. 
Um, when you're not doing data, what are you doing for fun? A favorite music, hobbies? I love, love to run. So uh, very fortunate in Wellington. We've got an amazing landscape and um, bush and hills to, to run in. Um, I'm actually off to Sydney um, next weekend to run the Sydney Marathon. So oh, have fun! Yeah, yeah, that's 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 going to be very very interesting. It's also an insight into I don't always think my all my decisions through to the end. When I I signed up for the Sydney Marathon, I thought, oh, this will be fantastic. It'll be a um, great challenge. It's supposed to be a flat course. I'll do a great time and. And then it's like, oh, then winter hit, and then it was training was really hard, and and now it's here. So, yeah, heading off to do that. Well, you're moving out of winter. It's it's not <laughs> as bad. It's not as bad and dreary as it was a couple months ago. But yeah, um, well, good luck with that. I think that's wonderful. And then, given the the fast paced nature of our industry, how do you keep up? Are there particular mentors, books? podcasts how do you keep up yeah a, a range of range of uh, areas and it's mostly keeping a really open open mind and so it's not I don't follow a particular area with interest um, but I follow everything um, I, I love learning about people and the why things are the way they are so there's a a book that I'd recommend to everybody called The Innovators. And it's it takes us through why, why we've got to the point that we have with technology today and the way it drives drives data. So that truly does tell us about the, the giants whose shoulders that we're standing on and helps us see into the future. So take inspiration from from books, from podcasts from conversations um, certainly take the opportunity to speak at events and be involved in events because you know I get a wide range of perspectives from other people and my own team my team are experts in their own field and I learn every day from from them as well and the organization that that I live in so surrounded by inspiration it's great to be surrounded by inspiration. And I like to always end on an inspiring um, note, hopefully. But as you think about all the things going on in the world, um, what are you most grateful for right now? Uh, look, it's um, to state the obvious, and we've touched on it, it's, it's to be alive in the time we're in. We're in uh, quite a pivotal time in in history, there's there's a rapid amount of change going on, and it's driving us towards the future. Being in the field of data is is a humbling experience because we're actually helping to shape shape that future to make it better for us, better for our family, our friends, our communities, and also future generations. And when we get to to do work in the areas of, of health, climate change, and be inspired by that and actually make a difference to the future. I think there can be no better time to be alive than now. We've survived a pandemic. We've 
Our health systems are in, in great shape. Our education systems are in great shape. I think it's just a truly fantastic and inspirational time to be alive, full of opportunity. I agree. Jan, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for this this opportunity. And look, really enjoyed the conversation today, Cindy. I'd say to anyone who's who's listening to this, thank you for taking the time to listen. And look, if there's anything anyone wants to, to talk about further, please don't hesitate in reaching out. Always happy to talk, happy to share. And thank you very much for the, the time today. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.